Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, before I start, I want to remind you that you can go to wealthformula.com, pick up a bunch of different resources, including my best selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can also get a copy of George Newberry's book. He'll send you a real book, not a, a download like my cheapy version. His book is about uh, the big bad world of uh, being a uh, big time real estate investor and a fall from grace and all this stuff. For those of you who want to be real estate investors, a book you've got to read. Also want to remind you, I'm going to just remind you this one more time and I'll remind you at the end of the show again. If you are an accredited investor, first of all, you need to get on my list, right? You need to get on to Investor Club because we got lots of stuff going through this thing and you're not hearing anything about it because you have to be part of the accredited investor group. As a reminder, what exactly is an accredited investor? An accredited investor is somebody who either is or isn't. It's not something you apply for. It's, it's, it's basically you either make $200,000 per year or you make $300,000 of filing jointly or you have a million dollars of net worth outside of your personal residence. And uh, if that sounds like you, you are an accredited investor. The reason I tell you that is some people think accredited. Well, gosh, I haven't been accredited before. Well, it's not something you apply for. You either are or you aren't. It's sort of you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. You know, that's basically it. But what I was about to say is for those of you who are and who have not joined the club, we're not taking advantage of this, frankly. I do want to point out one thing for any of you who fit that category and who've got a big tax problem for 2018. One of your options, which I call the nuclear option, is conservation easements. If you want to learn more about those, I have put the podcast that we did with Jim Sullivan on conserveandprosper.com. Go check it out now. This may be your last chance uh, to take advantage of this. You can still do it for 2018, but you will need to move quickly. Now, I want to talk about today's show. So how does one predict the future when it comes to uh, the economic world? How was it that some people were able to predict the 2008 financial meltdown? Were they clairvoyant? I like that word. It means just being able to be, you know, someone who sort of sees the future, right? Sort of like in a crystal ball, that kind of thing. Well, to be clear, I'm not talking about those who predict financial meltdowns every year. We see that all the time, right? And I call them chicken little. The sky's always falling. The The thing about those kinds of people is that they know one thing for sure, what goes up must come down. We all know that, though. And if you just throw something up in the air... And you say it's going to fall, but you don't say exactly when. You just keep saying it over and over again every year, every year, every week, every day. Eventually, it does fall, and you say, you see, I was right. Well, to me, that's not being a great macroeconomic mind, right? That's just basically somebody who may be believing what they're saying, but they're not really, really giving you a lot there um, outside of the obvious. What goes up must come down. When I look at these groups that are making predictions, like the ones in 2008, you think about the groups that are making predictions in 2008. It was the likes of ITR Economics. Those guys predicted this 2008 uh, meltdown uh, approximately nine months before it happened. That's, that's pretty impressive. But ITR Economics also was a group that predicted significant upside in the market when it happened as well. 
So they weren't just, oh, it's, it's you know, it's, it's going down, it's going down, it's going down. And finally it goes down. They say, you see, it was right. No, they're not like that. Neither is Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio, billion, billionaire hedge fund manager, and he is arguably one of the smartest financial people in the world, also predicted 2008. But he's also a guy who's made a lot of money in bull markets and um, has not always thought things were falling down, right? So the the people you want to pay attention to are the people who best understand how the global economy works at the macro level. And they can see it. They don't have a significant bias one way or another. They're not so dogmatic that they can't recognize things that move away from their own personal biases. Those are the people who can see where the world is really headed. Now, a macro economist is something I think very special. And if I had to do it over again, I think it'd be kind of cool to be an economist. But no, you know, I'm a doctor. That's what I am, just a dumb doctor. But most of us, uh, you know, us folks here are down in the weeds, right? We're seeing things happen in real time. We're wondering, you know, when to take cover, you know, or, or when do you shoot for the moon? When do you make the big bets? You know, that kind of thing. That's what we do. We live in this world. We're down here in real time. And the good macro economist, though, is not guessing. He sees the financial world move in concert from really like a thousand feet above with all these complex interplay, these interactions. He understands that the economy is dynamic. And in the global economy of today, it cannot be looked at through the lens that it was 50 years ago when economies were more isolated from one another. Now, listen, I am certainly no economist myself. Like I said, I am at best an armchair economist because I think it's interesting and I try to pay attention to it. However, I am really good at surrounding myself with people smarter than myself, which many, including my wife, would say is not that hard. But that is a skill that has essentially accounted for all of the investing success that I have had. And in the world of macroeconomics, one of the guys that I listen to and I'm listening to more and more is a guy by the name of Richard Duncan. Now, he is one of these guys that did predict 2008. Uh, He understands the economy very well. He comes at it from a a macro perspective, and he also comes at it from a non-Western perspective. So if you want to know what the world looks like, what the economy looks like, from a thousand feet above and, you know, several thousand miles away from the United States, you're not going to want to miss this episode. When we come back, Richard Duncan of MacroWatch. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Richard Duncan. He is the author of three books on the global economic crisis. He wrote The Dollar Crisis, uh, Causes, Consequences, Cures, which predicted the uh, recent global economic crisis with extraordinary accuracy. Um, and that one was an international bestseller. His second book was 
the corruption of capitalism, a strategy to rebalance the global economy and restore sustainable growth. And his latest book is The New Depression, The Breakdown of the Paper Money Economy. He's had an impressive career in the private financial sector and has also worked for the World Bank in Washington. And he's also been a consultant for the IMF in Thailand during the Asia crisis. Richard is a frequent contributor to national and international business news outlets and is a prolific writer and speaker internationally. He's also the editor of Macro Watch, which is a highly acclaimed newsletter on the uh, that follows global macroeconomic trends, and we'll get into that um, in a bit. But welcome, Richard, from Thailand. Buck, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's uh, it's funny to have these conversations across the uh, across the world like this. And tomorrow morning, I'm, I'm supposed to speak to a guy in New Zealand, and I'm sitting here in Santa Barbara talking to everybody. But uh, it's a, it's an interesting world we live in. Listen, I, w- I wanted to kind of get a little bit of background on on you first, Richard. I mean, you have a, a pretty interesting uh, story. I mean, how did you end up in Thailand? Okay, so I I grew up in Kentucky and went to Vanderbilt. And after Vanderbilt, I ended up back, <clears throat> backpacking around the world for a year. And I saw Asia the first time then when I had just turned 24. And it was booming economically. So I went back to business school at Babson outside Boston. And when I finished Babson, I flew to Hong Kong and found a job working as a securities analyst, um, doing research on the Hong Kong stock market. And since then I've lived in overseas almost all the time, except for a couple of years at the World Bank in Washington. Uh, I've moved around from Hong Kong, Singapore, and Thailand several times each, and also spent a few years in London and Paris. So most of my career has been focused on Asia. I have I had very lucky timing in arriving <laughs> in Asia in the midst of an extraordinary boom. The, the first year I was in Hong Kong, the economy grew by 13%. In the first 12 months I was there, it went up, the stock market went up 100%. So it was great timing. But yeah. I've also been fortunate in seeing a number of very extreme economic booms and bust during this period and watched globalization in action, if you will. It struck me very early on looking at the developments around southern China, back even in the late 1980s, you could see factories into the distance as far as the eye could see, full of young women earning about $3 a day. And it was clear that this was going to create extraordinary global imbalances, resulting in the deindustrialization of the developed economies, the U.S. in particular, and a political backlash sooner or later. And so that has now arrived. And it doesn't surprise me that it has, but this has transformed the world, this the emergence of Asia during the last few decades. An interesting perspective to have, right, as an American watching everything on, unveil as an economist, uh, but not looking at it from within the United States. But um, And it was fortunate to be able to look at several different economies rather than only the U.S. economy. So while being in Asia, I had the opportunity to analyze what was going on in Hong Kong, Singapore, and larger economies, Thailand, as well as India, Indonesia, Vietnam. So they have all moved in somewhat different cycles. But the thing that I believe I've learned from watching these big booms and big busts is that they've all been driven by credit expansion. Yeah, let's 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 pick up on that part because I think just going back from you know watching a little bit, reading a little bit about uh, what you write, you talk about a you know a major shift in how the economy works uh, that occurred uh, after the U.S. came off the gold standard. Uh, can you talk about that and exactly kind of how that shifted and and presumably that's where credit really became the the driver. Right. I do believe the way the economy works fundamentally changed once the U.S. stopped backing dollars with gold. That happened in two stages. In 1968, the Fed, Congress changed the law so that the Fed no longer had to 
hold any gold to back the dollars it issued. And then three years later in 71, President Nixon ended the Bretton Woods system by reneging on the United States promise to allow other countries to convert their dollars into US owned gold. And afterwards, the global economy began to change in extraordinary ways. First of all, of course, the central banks were then free to create as much money as they dared, let's say. Up until that point, they actually had to have gold to back any additional currency that they issued. And so afterwards, that was no longer a constraint. So they were able to issue much more money. Uh, for instance, we've seen in the last 10 years, this extraordinary paper money creation by all the central banks around the world. The Fed created three and a half trillion dollars through quantitative easing. So none of that would have been possible had we remained on the gold standard. But from an international perspective, the most important thing perhaps was that trade between nations ceased to balance. When we were on the Bretton Woods system, the United States did not have a large trade deficit with the rest of the world, nor did other countries. That's because under the gold standard or the quasi gold standard Bretton Woods system, if a country had a large trade deficit with a different country, it had to pay for that deficit by handing over its gold. And since every country only had a limited amount of gold, they couldn't afford to have big trade deficits with other countries. And so trade between countries balanced. That's the way things worked up until the Bretton Woods system broke down in 1971. Well, trade continued to balance more or less until the early 1980s. But starting in the 1980s, it, it seems the United States suddenly discovered that it could buy things from other countries and it didn't have to pay for those things with gold anymore. It could buy things from China and, or I meant to say Japan and Germany and run very large trade deficits with those countries. And it didn't have to pay with gold. It could pay with US dollars, which it could create, or more commonly, US government bonds denominated in dollars, which of course it could also create. So suddenly the United States started running these extraordinarily large trade deficits. By the mid 1980s, the US trade deficit was roughly three and a half percent of US GDP which was completely unheard of and thought to be extraordinarily destabilizing. So at that point, the leaders of the G7 um, met at the Plaza Hotel in New York and struck the Plaza Accord to try to bring things back into balance. And under that accord, the dollar was devalued by about 50% against the yen and the mark. And that did move trade back into balance uh, temporarily. But then China entered the global economy in the early 90s. And by 2006, the US current account deficit had blown out to $800 billion that one year alone. That was 6% of US GDP. So as long as the US trade deficit became larger and larger, this provided the fuel that drove the entire global economy. Naturally, with the U.S. buying $800 billion more from the rest of the world than the rest of the world was buying from the U.S., this was extremely good for the global economy, and it fueled a worldwide economic boom. That was all great. In fact, it pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty around the world. But in 2008, we reached the point where the American private sector, and in particular the U.S. households, had become so deeply indebted that they were no longer able to take on any more debt and they began defaulting on the debt that they had already. And at that point, the US trade deficit contracted very sharply and the world went into the, the worst economic downturn since the 1930s. Let's say, Richard, we could back up a little bit. For those of us who may be you know, not really as well versed in, in the macroeconomic issues, let me ask you a very basic question. Why do trade deficits matter well they they matter because they have to be for one for many reasons uh, on one side the, the, there is a trade deficit on one side and there is a trade surplus of course on the other side now the countries with the trade surplus what they find let's let's take 
Japan in the 80s as an example. It was really the first country to experience the massive trade surpluses. So Japanese manufacturers would sell their goods in the United States, Hondas, etc., and be paid in dollars. They would take those dollars back to Japan. And those that was foreign wealth that was exogenous to the Japanese economy. That foreign wealth would go into the Japanese banking system and cause rapid deposit growth in Japan. So the banks in Japan with so many deposits that encouraged them to have rapid loan growth. And the very rapid loan growth then in Japan fueled very rapid economic growth. And this went on for so long in Japan that by the Japan was blown into an enormous economic bubble as a result of the foreign capital entering the Japanese economy. So by the end of the 1980s, they say the gardens around the Imperial Palace in Tokyo were worth more than California. Mm -hmm. So the country had been blown into such an enormous bubble and the stocks were all trading on 100 times P multiples. People had to have three generation mortgages just to be able to afford to buy a tiny flat 90 year mortgages. So Japan was blown into an extraordinarily large bubble. So what we've seen again and again is the countries that have large trade surpluses. Those countries are blown into economic bubbles. That's what I witnessed firsthand in Thailand. From 1990. I lived in Thailand from 1990 until 1996. And at first, it truly was an economic miracle. But pretty soon, so much capital was flooding into Thailand and going into the banking system. The banks were lending it out. That there was such an extraordinary boom. Buildings were popping up, skyscrapers were popping up like mushrooms everywhere you looked. And that was just the most visible sign of what was happening. I was managing a large research department there, and we were doing research on all the listed companies. So we could see that all the industries were expanding their capacity very dramatically. Steel companies, cement companies, every industry quadrupled its capacity and quadrupled it again. But at the end, there was simply not enough purchasing power in Thailand to absorb all of the, the condominiums that had been built. And so, and to absorb all the excess capacity that had been created. And then it, the back now the it, obviously it sounds, you know, it, it sounds a lot like what's going on with China now. Um, exactly. No, t- tell us, I mean, I, it was a great explanation on the sort of the surplus end, but us as the givers, as the export, uh, as the, um, you know, as the, as the buyers of 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 all of these exports, how did that affect us? And they, I'm still trying to break down something that's you know probably very obvious for an economist, but how a trade deficit actually you know affects both both sides. So right. So yes, it had very important consequences, numerous consequences for the United States, for instance. So as the U.S. began buying more and more goods made with extremely low-cost labor, the cost of manufactured goods fell in the United States. So there was disinflation, there was downward pressure on prices. And as the inflation rate fell from double digits in the 70s down to basically zero a few years ago, then uh, interest rates also fell. And as interest rates fell, then credit became more affordable and the Americans began borrowing a great deal more. And so credit as a percentage of GDP in the U.S. increased from 150 percent in the around 1980 up to 370 by 2007. So and so it drove down interest rates. It fueled a credit boom. And also as the interest rates fell, it also fueled an asset price boom. Uh, the stock market rose, property prices rose. Now, at the same time, it hollowed out U.S. manufacturing. Um, manufacturing as a percentage of GDP became very much smaller. And so many of the people who had been employed in the manufacturing sector lost their jobs and wages have been stagnant for a very significant part of the population now since the 70s. Now, there's one other way in which it affected the United States every country's balance of payments has to balance. So what that means 
it's like a family. If a family spends more money than it earns, then it has to either sell something or it has to borrow <clears throat> the money. And it's the same with the country. So when the U.S. has an $800 billion trade deficit, as it did in 2006, it has to borrow $800 billion from the rest of the world or sell goods uh, or sell assets to the rest of the world. So that means that if there's an $800 billion trade deficit, there will be $800 billion of capital inflow into the country. Now, so the bigger the U.S. trade deficit becomes, the more capital from abroad flows into the United States. And the capital that, that, that is still flowing into the United States, that is invested in things like U.S. government bonds. And that pushes up U.S. government bond prices, and that pushes down interest rates. And so back in 2004 and 2005, the Fed was concerned the U.S. economy was overheating, and it started increasing the federal funds rate. I, it increased it from, I think, 1% to five and a quarter percent over, an, I think, an 18 month period. But the, so the, in other words, the Fed was uh, tightening very rapidly, but the 10 year bond yield didn't move higher. It didn't budge. And the, so the Fed was not able to cool down the economy because the interest rates that mattered, the 10 year bond yields and the mortgage rates, they weren't responding to the, the Fed rate hikes. And Mr. Greenspan was asked by a Senator why is that, Mr. Greenspan? You've been hiking the federal funds rate again and again, but the 10-year bond yield isn't going up. Uh, why? And Greenspan said, I don't know. It's a conundrum. But I think he must have known that the explanation was the foreign central banks, foreign countries were pumping so much money into the United States that and buying U.S. government bonds that it pushed up bond prices and it held down the bond yields despite what the Fed was doing. And therefore, it caused the Fed to lose control over interest rates and therefore over the economy. And the Fed was unable to cool down the economy. And consequently, the U.S. economy was blown into the bubble that blew up in 2008. Just as a just as a quick clarification, I think just for listeners, the 10 year uh, the 10 year um, is basically reflective of of inflation. Right. So presumably, if increasing the Fed's fund rate was not um, not having an effect on the tenure, then uh, that's what you're saying, is that basically you were unable to slow down the economy because you're unable to slow down inflation. Well, no, they were, they wanted to, to slow down the economy. The Fed wanted the interest rates higher. Yeah. Because higher interest rates would then... Uh, it would result in businesses being less profitable. And oh, no, I get that part. But I'm saying with the tenure that you're talking about, the, the, the tenure treasury, uh, you were saying that it was not being affected by the, the uh, increase in the Fed's fund rate, right? Right, because simply because of the supply and demand for tenure government bonds. Okay. Foreign countries were buying so many government bonds that – it was driving up their price and driving down their yield. And the Fed just simply lost control over the interest rate structure because of foreign buying. Now, it's also interesting to point out here where the foreigners were getting the money that they used to buy the U.S. government bonds. So let me step back again. Let's, this time, let's use China as an example. Mm -hmm. China now has the largest trade surplus with the United States. It's more than a $1 billion a day. So this is how it works. Chinese manufacturers sell their goods in the United States. They get paid in dollars. They take these dollars back to China and they want to convert the dollars into the Chinese currency, the RMB. But if, if they were allowed to do this in a free market, if those Chinese exporters converted all of those dollars into RMB, it would push up the Chinese currency to a very high level. And that would make China's exports no longer competitive. So to prevent that from happening, China's central bank, the P People's Bank of China, the PBOC, they intervene and they buy all of the dollars coming into China at more or less a fixed exchange rate. 
So whoever brings the dollars in, they get to convert their money into RMB and do anything they want with it. But sooner or later, it goes on deposit, causes, causes rapid deposit growth, rapid loan growth, and the economic boom. But the point of this story is the, the central bank. Where did China's central bank get enough money to buy all of these dollars coming in to China? Well, the answer is they are a central bank. They have a magic wand. They can right. wave it around and create money out of thin air. So China ended up creating the equivalent of $4 trillion of Chinese RMB in U.S. dollars. And they used that to buy $4 trillion to hold down the value of their currency in spite of market forces that would have driven the value of their currency very, very much higher. So it was paper money creation by the People's Bank of China. That's where they got the money to buy the dollars. And once they own the dollars, they needed to invest those dollars somewhere in order to earn income on them. And so they bought normally, typically, U.S. government bonds or bonds issued and guaranteed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And they bought them on such a large scale that it, it, they pushed up the price of these bonds and drove interest rates down to a very low level. And this fueled this, you could say, this foreign money creation ended up fueling the economic bubble in the United States. So where are we in terms of, you know, obviously we've got now, um, we've got asset bubbles everywhere globally. What next? What, I mean, what, I mean, we, you know, we've been talking about this uh, on this show. We've been talking, you know, you hear it on other shows and there's a lot of generalized doom and gloom about, you know, this thing's going to, bust and there's zombie apocalypse and and they say that almost sort of a little bit tongue-in-cheek but it's sort of like you almost get kind of tired listening to people talking about what's next and this thing's gonna blow and it's gonna be ugly is that is that your take is that and if it is it's okay <laughs> but I, I i'm i'm curious uh sort of on what your take is you know what's happening right now particularly in in you know we're, we live in, in times that are a little bit unusual. You know, I had a guy on from ITR Economics, um, uh, Alan Bolio, uh, who, you know, they, they pre do a lot of predictions, predicting since the 50s. They've been getting things, you know, right uh, with, with an uncanny uh, uh, type of uh, accuracy. And I asked him about, you know, the Trump administration and tariffs and all this stuff. And he said, you know, we haven't figured out exactly how to, factor in, you know, the Trump factor into our algorithms, <laughs> because it's, uh, it's, it, it's kind of hard. We're, we sort of live in a fairly unprecedented political times as well, um, sort of on the precipice of uh, either trade wars or at least the threat. Maybe it's just, a, you know, some people say it's just negotiation tactics or whatever. Interest rates, you know, uh, continuing to climb, although it looks like Chairman Powell might have, you know, been spooked a little bit and put a little put down on on that as well. Where are we, and and where do you see us headed uh, in the next in, over the next twelve months or so? All right. Well, I, I there is certainly cause for concern, uh, and however, I I think many of the people who believe that there is no way out are trapped in an old way of thinking and need to look at the world as it is today and come up with uh, solutions that are available to us today that weren't necessarily available to us ever before. So let me begin with the, the concerns. So yes, there are asset price bubbles and the most crucial factor that will determine what's going to happen to the economy in the years immediately ahead, uh, that factor is interest rates which way will interest rates go? So if we look back to the early 1980s, the interest rates on 10-year government bonds were 15%. Well, they came down and down because globalization pushed down inflation and interest rates. And as I mentioned earlier, as the interest rates fell, the Americans borrowed more and more. So credit growth expanded at an extraordinary pace. Uh, it increased from 150% of GDP up to 370% of GDP. And the credit growth drove the economic growth. 
any time that, going back to 1950, any time that credit in the United States grew by less than 2% adjusted for inflation, then the U.S. went into recession. So let me repeat that. If credit grows by less than 2% in the U.S., total credit, and by that I mean government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt, all the debt, and total debt is equal to total credit. If it grows by less than 2% adjusted for inflation, that happened nine times between 1950 and 2009. Every time it happened, the U.S. went into recession. So now the danger is if interest rates move higher, then credit is going to contract. And if credit contracts, that's going to throw the U.S. into severe recession. Next, also, as interest rates move down, then asset prices move much higher. So stocks moved higher and property moved higher. Now, household sector net worth in the United States, in other words, all the assets of the Americans minus all of the liabilities, is now skyrocketed to $107 trillion. That's more than 50% above where it was in 2007, before the crisis. And so if you compare this wealth to disposable personal income, if you take household sector net worth as a percent of disposable personal income, I call this the wealth to income ratio, then it's far more stretched than it has ever been before. Uh, the average since 1950 <clears throat> for this wealth to income ratio was 540% in 2000, in 2000 with the NASDAQ bubble, it hit 614% and then it popped and went back to the average. In 2007, it went to 660% and then it popped and went back to the average. Now it's 690%. It has never been higher. And so that's telling us that asset prices are very stretched relative to income. That's possible because low interest rates and quantitative easing pushed up the asset prices. So if now, if interest rates move higher, then it's very likely that it's going to cause the asset prices to crash and this wealth to income ratio to move back down to its average. And if that were to occur, to occur, that would literally destroy tens of trillions of US dollars of wealth. So there is certainly cause for concern. There are lots of reasons to worry that US interest rates will move higher. First of all, the US government is borrowing much more now than it was before. The budget deficit is becoming much larger because of the tax cuts and the increased government spending that Congress passed about a year ago. It's making the budget deficit higher. The deficit's likely to be more than a trillion dollars this year, which is startling given that the economy is strong. And next, trade war is a very real concern. President Trump, when he was running for office, promised to put 45% trade tariffs on all Chinese goods. And so far, he's already started to do that. Well, if, if, if the administration puts large trade tariffs on Chinese goods, then that's going to make products sold in Walmart considerably more expensive. And that will cause the inflation rate to go up. And if the inflation rate goes up, then interest rates will go up. No one will lend you money for 3% if the inflation rate is 5%. They might lend you money for 7 or 8%. So, higher, so there again, there's a danger that U.S. interest rates will rise. And finally, one of President Trump's main goals is to bring down the U.S. trade deficit. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the balance of payments has to balance. The larger the trade deficit is, the more capital flows into the United States. That means if the trade deficit shrinks, then the capital inflows into the United States will also shrink. If there are fewer capital inflows buying U.S. government bonds, then that's also going to put upward pressure on interest rates. So there are a number of reasons to worry that interest rates will, will rise. And if that occurs, then credit's likely to contract and asset prices are likely to crash and the U.S. is likely to spiral into a very severe recession. So people are right to be worried, but they're not right to to wring their hands and say we're doomed and we, and we might as well just crawl into a cave and, <clears throat> and wait, for the, wait for the inevitable doom to descend upon us. We need to look at the world as it is today and find solutions to our current problems. What are those solutions? What are some of the solutions? Because when I, when you describe everything that's going on, the thing that that strikes me is there's you know I, it's, there's obviously 
a web here that it's very difficult to untangle and, um, you know, trying to, you know, you can, it, it, you know, uh, with rates going up, well, they, they kind of have to go up after a while, right? I mean, you can't have near zero interest rates forever. That's going to continue to increase asset prices if they stay there. You don't want, you know, that to encourage, you know, overall uh, inflation over time. So you're, you're going to have to raise rates. On the other hand, if you're raising rates, you're going to hurt the economy. And we've already got asset bubbles that are ready to pop. And if we don't pop them now, they'll just grow. And we're kicking the can down the road a little bit further for even larger asset bubbles. Is that a fair assessment or am I seeing something wrong there? So I think that would be a fair assessment if we were living in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, Back in the 1960s when the U.S. government spent too much money, it tended to overstimulate the economy. For example, under Lyndon Johnson uh, and President uh, Nixon, the Vietnam War and the social welfare spending that overstimulated the U.S. economy. And at that time, we had a closed domestic economy. We didn't have a trade deficit. And so we very quickly reached full employment and full industrial capacity utilization. And afterwards, that led to rapidly increasing wages and prices and to rapidly increasing inflation. And that's the way the world used to work. But we're not living in that world anymore. In the world where we live, we have a global economy and we are not confined to a closed domestic U.S. economy with a work with a population of 300 million people. We have a global economy with nearly 8 billion people and 2 billion of those people live on less than $3 a day. So what this means is that it is possible for the U.S. government to spend more, to have larger budget deficits without overstimulating the U.S. economy and leading to an inflationary spike similar to what we saw in the 1960s and 70s. And furthermore, because globalization is so deflationary, what we also now have witnessed over the last 10 years is that not only is it possible for the government of the, of the U.S., to borrow much more money, it is also possible for the central bank to create literally trillions of dollars to help finance that budget deficit. So what we've seen over the last 10 years is the U.S. government debt has increased by $11 trillion. I think that's an increase of 175%. And of that $11 trillion, the Fed has financed nearly a third of it by creating money from thin air. Now, in the past, it was not possible for central banks to create money. Uh, tradi- traditional economics makes it is very well understood. The greatest taboo for a central bank is to print money on a very much money because it always leads to higher rates of inflation and even hyperinflation. But that hasn't occurred this time. The, the Fed has been print, printing enormous amounts of money, and so has the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan. And nowhere have we seen even moderately high levels of consumer price inflation. Mm -hmm. So we are now living in a different world. In our global world, the lessons of the last 10 years are that it is possible for the government to have much larger budget deficits and to finance a significant amount of those deficits with paper money creation without causing high rates of inflation. So what is the lesson we should learn from this? I think what we should learn from this is that this is truly a unique moment in history. This combination of globalization with paper money creation by central banks, this combination has never occurred before. And the paper money creation should be inflationary, but the globalization is extremely deflationary. And the two forces are completely offsetting one another. And this means that it would be possible for our government to borrow literally trillions of dollars over the next decade and invest that money in new industries and new technologies 
and completely restructure the U.S. economy. The U.S. over the next 10 years could invest a trillion dollars in, let's say, genetic engineering, a trillion dollars in biotech, a trillion dollars in nanotech, and a trillion dollars in green energy, and induce thereby a technological revolution that would allow us to grow our way out of the predicament we're in at the moment and also retrain the workforce and, and the younger, younger generation and as a byproduct, create technological miracles and medical marvels that would extend life expectancy and solve much of our social security and Medicare problem. So sounds like the new deal kind of the new deal for the new age, perhaps right. Right. The new age where globalization has changed the parameters in which our economy works. You can think of it like this in many ways, most economists uh, and particularly Austrian economists, I would say they think of us as being a fish and a glass fishbowl. We have certain parameters within which we can operate, but they don't realize that the fishbowl has been dropped into a very large lake. And now all the fish has to do is swim out the top and it has much wider scope than it ever had before. It can, what this means is that we can, at the government level, borrow and invest much more aggressively than we ever have before. I mean, we, and now the alternative seems to be, given that people are not considering this option, the fallback option now looks like it's going to be protectionism. We're going to put up trade barriers. We're going to crash globalization. And if we do, then that's going to cause interest rates to spike in the U.S. Of course, if we put up 25% trade tariffs on Chinese goods, China's economy is probably going to implode. But it's also going to cause very high rates of inflation and much higher interest rates in the U.S., which will throw the U.S. into severe recession. And between China and the U.S. being in extreme recessions, that's going to crash the world economy. So rather than having trade wars, there's an alternative. If, if President Trump is concerned that China is overtaking the United States economically because China has policies like made in China 2025, well, the solution is not to crash the global economy and trying to bring down China. The solution is for the United States to invest as well in new industries and technologies. We need a invest in America 2025 and we can dominate 2025 and 2035 and 2075. We can invest on such a scale that it would result in truly miracles. We could solve, we could cure many of the diseases. We could extend life expectancy. So this is a once in history opportunity. If we just take advantage of this new environment we are living in, where it is possible for the government to borrow and deficit spend without causing inflation, and where it's possible for the central bank to finance much of the borrowing the paper money creation without causing inflation. But that's only possible so long as globalization persists and continues to be deflationary. Um, do you think that uh, <clears throat> do you think that the that there's political will for that kind of program in the US? I mean certainly I certainly cannot see that necessarily in um, in this administration. Well, after your listeners uh, absorb this interview, I'm sure there will be political will in the country to, <laughs> to bring about such an obvious solution with such tremendous benefits to not only our country, but the entire world. Well, I, I think one of the the challenges um, with what you're talking about is it's, it's, um, it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? Um, the the uh, so-called uh, fiscal conservatives who who are no longer conservative fiscally <laughs> are um, are not really thinking uh, in terms of uh, they're, they're they're you know they they used to be concerned about the debt they're not really concerned about the debt now but then the spending is really not something they um, they want to do in terms of infrastructure right they they'd rather just do the tax cuts which benefit people like me, but 
don't really seem to necessarily do much for the for the country. And so I wonder how much political will there really is to do what you're talking about. And um, well, what, go ahead. Yeah, I think that the, the trick here is to persuade those people, the wealthiest classes in the United States, that they would become enormously wealthy as a result of the programs I'm proposing. These sort of investment programs would generate so much wealth for the wealthiest that it would be much more beneficial to them than mere tax cuts. Furthermore, they might discover that a large U.S. investment in genetic engineering and biotech uh, could come up with a cure for cancer and extend their life expectancy by decades, for right. instance, and Alzheimer's. So the trick is to, this would benefit all segments of the, the, the American public and the world in general. It would make the global economy grow. It would uh, make everyone much more prosperous. The, the people at the working level, working class level, the middle class, and the wealthiest. But as always, of course, the wealthiest would benefit most. Now, this could be done in two different ways. The, I suppose the least popular way people are not don't like is the idea of just the government investing directly in these programs. In the 60s, President Kennedy, in early 1960s, said we're going to send a man to the moon. And the government invested very aggressively. And it was more or less done all, NASA was done more, more or less, you could say, under one big roof that the government managed everything. Okay, so that worked out pretty well. We sent a man to the moon, what was it, 68, 69? And the private sector still hasn't sent a man to the moon. Now, out of that program, it not only strengthened the U.S. economy during the 60s, but it generated extraordinary technologies, perhaps the most important of which was it radically enhanced the United States' intercontinental ballistic missiles, which ultimately helped bankrupt the Soviet Union. But on a smaller scale, it created things like handheld calculators. Now, so that's one way these investment programs could be carried out under one big roof with the government doing it all. People don't like that idea, so here's another way. The government could act as a, a giant venture capital company. So the government sells government bonds, the Fed finances some of these bonds with paper money creation. And then the government <clears throat> chooses the, let's say, the 10,000 most promising American entrepreneurs and sets up joint venture capital companies, sets up joint venture companies with them, in which, let's say, the government keeps a 60% stake. The entrepreneurs who manage the company keep a 40% stake. The government funds these joint venture companies lavishly and the managers manage the companies. And when one of them come, comes up with a vaccine that, that prevents cancer, you list it on NASDAQ for $10 trillion with the taxpayers keeping 60%. And uh, we cure cancer and we pay down the national debt and we drive the global economy and everyone is better off. Are you hearing anybody talking about this uh, government in the government? Not yet. Yeah. But when they see the cons, hopefully they will see the consequences of the alternative, uh, the trade war. Uh, it seems to me that uh, President Trump blinked in his dinner with Beijing a few days ago. Uh, I don't think Beijing gave him anything they had not offered before. Um, and, but he was afraid to go ahead and put up trade tariffs, perhaps, on the 1st of January to 25%, because this is going to obviously do not only damage to China's economy, but to the U.S. economy and to the U.S. stock market. It's going to, and it's not at all certain that uh, if he goes ahead with these trade war policies, that he will be reelected. He would right. like to be reelected, of course. And he's beginning to see that there it's not going to be easy for him to be reelected if he goes ahead with the trade war. Yeah, so there's a much better alternative. Tough to play chicken with the Chinese, right? That's, well, that's <laughs> right. But, uh, I mean, the Chinese would lose more than the Americans, sure, I think. Sure, But, uh, but I think the they know they know very well that um, that's probably not something that we would actually 
you know, self-inflict. So it would be a much better idea for President Trump to do what he said he would do the night that he was elected president. I, I watched was it was night for me, but his, uh, his when he was when he the, the night he was elected, he made a speech. He said, "We are going to invest in infrastructure. We are going to have airports and highways and bridges second to none in the entire world." Uh, well, that was a very good idea. And we should also have government investment in all the major technologies that are going to drive the world forward this century. So let's do that. Uh, that's where you can make your make America's economy great again come true. That's right. the way to do it. You've discussed it. So now deliver. Let's have investment in the U.S. I mean, after all, President Reagan is a hero to many of the, uh, to the conservative side, what did he do? He invested on a very large scale in the U.S. military. And as a result, today we still have the, the greatest military in the world. So he believed in investment, government investment. Now we just need more government investment in the industries of the future. And this is we can afford this because we can now do this without creating inflation. It is a once in history opportunity. We need to make the most of it. We don't have to crawl into a cave and wait for doom to descend on us. If you're worried about Medicare going bankrupt and Social Security going bankrupt 30 years from now, let's not just sit back and wait for that to happen. Let's invest and let's cure all the diseases. Richard, this has been really good stuff. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about Macro Watch. What is the what's the newsletter? What does it focus on? Uh, who's it available to, et cetera? Okay, thank you. Yes, so Macro Watch is a video newsletter that I publish once every two weeks or so. I upload a new video onto the website. It's essentially me making a PowerPoint presentation. Each one's generally 20 minutes long and has 30 or 40 downloadable charts. Now, MacroWatch, I believe, as you can tell from our conversation, I believe that credit growth drives economic growth. And I also believe that liquidity, in other words, the amount of money sloshing around in the economy, that determines which way asset prices move, up or down. And the government attempts to control both credit growth and liquidity. So it's important to focus on government policy. Now, for instance, the government is reversing quantitative easing. That's one of the reasons it's quantitative tightening now. They're destroying $50 billion a month. That's one of the main reasons the stock market is, is, is now struggling. So MacroWatch looks at the most important forces driving the global economy, not only in the US, but China and, and all the other largest economies. And your listeners, if they will, they can check out MacroWatch by visiting my website at richardduncaneconomics.com. That's richardduncaneconomics.com. And I'd like to offer them a 50% subscription discount. If they will click on the subscribe button, they will, and use the discount coupon code formula they can subscribe to MacroWatch at a 50% discount. So that's richardduncaneconomics.com and the discount code is FORMULA. One thing I wanted to point out too, for those people who are listening to this thinking, well, Richard might uh, might be a little bit too smart for me. <laughs> and uh, you actually have a bunch of videos that you use as sort of a core curriculum to kind of... Uh, you know, to, to, to get people caught up as part of that. Yes, that's right. So there, when, when someone subscribes to MacroWatch, they have immediate access to the archives. The, the archives now have nearly 50 hours of videos. The, the subscribers can begin watching immediately. And included there, there are two courses that I, I made at the beginning. One is called... Uh, capitalism in crisis, and the other is called How the Economy Really Works. And that provides uh, the foundation for understanding everything that I discuss afterwards. But really, I think I make things very clear. 
the great thing about having a video newsletter is you can include lots and lots of charts and the, the charts make all my points, I think, very easy to understand. Yeah, so absolutely. Check it out. <clears throat> Again, that's richardduncaneconomics.com. And um, the the discount code is formula. And um, I'm definitely going to subscribe uh, myself, Richard. So um, I'm uh, eager to start following you. It's This is stuff, I think... Um, that we all need to understand better. We're kind of, um, you know, it, it's hard as investors to, you know, kind of uh, predict the future without having some sort of sense of what's going on in the world around us. And um, and so I think the most sophisticated investors, the people who really, really do well and can kind of get a sense of where the economy is going, uh, really need to have some sense of macroeconomics. And I think uh, your newsletter would provide a very good place uh, for me and for others in this group. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Buck. I've enjoyed it. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the show, everyone. I have to admit that I have to admit that I didn't understand everything that Richard said. I will admit that because uh, some of it was just a little bit over my head, but. Uh, that's probably a good reason for me to go back and listen to this show again, which I do sometimes. Um, I think that uh, I'm not, uh, not you know, sometimes I am I'm in real-time conversation. I don't have time to think about things as much as I'd like to, so I'll go back and listen. And personally, I'm also going to go ahead and take advantage of that 50% discount offer that he so kindly made uh, for his newsletter, which is uh, called MacroWatch. It's at richardduncaneconomics.com. I know there's a lot of smart people who listen to Richard. I know that uh, Robert Kiyosaki is also a big Richard Duncan fan. It's not like they always agree on things. If you listen to Kiyosaki's show, you know that uh, Richard does have some different views on the world. And obviously, he's also, uh, at least right now, a Keynesian uh, economist, which uh, which I think um, that's different from most people in this space. Uh, what he's advocating for is different than what others are. He's talking about actually spending more. But why he's backing it up? Because he says, you know, the 10-year treasury won't move. And that's pretty interesting. But anyway, I want to learn more, so I'm going to make a decision now. I am going to sign up uh, for that newsletter. Uh, I have nothing to disclose. I don't make any money from it. I just want to learn. And also, just so you uh, remember that to get that discount, he said to use the password or the uh, the word formula. Uh, I assume that's from Wealth Formula, by the way. Anyway, Phil will put that in the show notes as well and also in the resources section of wealthformula.com, which if you haven't visited, you should sometime soon. One last announcement I will say that, um, well, uh, two other announcements. One is that we are going to have a Wealth Formula event. It's going to be an accredited investor event. It's going to be on March 2nd. I don't have all of the details yet, but I want to let you know if you're an accredited investor, uh, definitely mark that down. I apologize. It's only for the accredited folks this time. It's a long story, but uh, space is limited and it's really stuff that's focused, hyper-focused on accredited investors. Again, you either are an accredited investor or you're not based on how much money you have or make. You don't have to apply. But you do need to sign up my investor club and fill out some paperwork there uh, showing that you are why you're an accredited investor. And if you do that, you will see an invitation to that event uh, in the near future. I think it's going to be a really good one. And I promise we will have more inclusive events in the future. This one, though, is a little bit of a partnership with others. And I just, I'm not really... a uh, at liberty to uh, in, invite everyone. Anyway, um, the last thing I want to point out is, uh, again, I told you I would do this at the beginning of the show. If you are W-2, if you are whatever you are, you got a bunch of income and you are accredited and you want to know what your options are, I highly recommend you listen to a podcast episode I did with Jim Sullivan. Um, you can see that at conserveandprosper.com. 
this will probably be the last. Uh, this will be the last time this year I mention that uh, personally because of the fact that you know you're running out of time for 2018. Uh, if you want to get involved, go to conserveandprosper.com. There is still time. Uh, and with that said, uh, this is uh, Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at SafeYouPodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, SafeYouPodcast.com.